0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 79. Holy smokes, a lot has happened since last week. Uh, First up, on Wednesday evening, the French government declared a state of emergency in Tahiti due to rising COVID-19 cases and closed the border, meaning the outer known Tahiti Pro had to be canceled. This is a huge bummer because we were all looking forward to Tahiti this season. But we are unquestionably still in a global pandemic, and the safety and well being of the communities we visit, as well as our surfers and staff, is paramount. Uh, sending love to our family and friends in Chopu and all of Tahiti, we will be back. This news, of course, dropped mid event at the Corona Open Mexico presented by Quicksilver, where the world's best surfers were taking on pumping surf at Barra de la Cruz. The event was won in incredible fashion by seven-time WSL champion Stephanie Gilmore and 2021 tour rookie Jack Robinson. Congrats to both of them. And this also means that with Tahiti canceled due to COVID-19, the WSL Final Five are locked. On the women's side, we will have number five surfer, Joanne Defay taking on number four, Stephanie Gilmore in match one. The winner will then take on number three surfer, Sally Fitzgibbons in match two. The winner will take on number two surfer, Tatiana Weston Webb in match three. And then the winner of that will take on the number one surfer, Carissa Moore in a best two out of three battle for the world title. On the men's side, we have number five surfer, Morgan Sibilic taking on number four surfer, Connor Coffin in the opening match. The winner will then battle number three, Felipe Toledo. The winner will then face number two surfer and reigning world champion, Italo Ferreira. And the winner of that bout will take on number one surfer, Gabriel Medina in a best two out of three clash for the world title. Very exciting times and the waiting period for the Rip Curl WSL finals at lower trestles will begin on September 9th. Do not miss it. And finally, before we get to today's episode, I want to take a minute to congratulate former colleague and forever friend, Brooke Ferris, on being appointed as the global CEO of Rip Curl. Actually, congratulations should go to Rip Curl for securing Brooke because she is the real deal. And this is not only a fantastic thing for Rip Curl, but surfing writ large, in my opinion. All right. Episode 79. Today's guest is someone who hails from the wave-starved but mysteriously productive Gulf Coast of Florida. His ahead-of-its-time progressive approach to surfing in everything from 2 feet to 20 feet made him a top-tier profile surfer of the 90s and aughties alongside touring best friend Andy Irons. His video parts influenced generations of surfers, as did how he revolutionized taking on the previously thought to be unrideable Chopu. He pioneered the infamous Namibian left-hander of Skeleton Bay. And we talk about all this and more. Please enjoy the lineups conversation with the Gulf Coast's Corey Lopez. The good old clap take one. That's right. (laughs) How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave, get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. (laughs) I thought to your (laughs) boxing. All right, so a special personal episode for me today because we have my very first surfing hero, Corey Lopez on the lineup, which is pretty surreal. So Corey, uh, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, stoked. Thanks for having me. I'm talking Tahiti, I think. And we're talking about,
0: we can talk, whatever you, we can talk whatever you want. We can go, we go any which way, but you know, it's funny. Like I, I I'm 38, I grew up in Orange County. My friends and I, that got into surfing, we were straight into the lost films on the road with spike and what's really going wrong, uh, when yep. we started. So you being a goofy footer and me being a goofy footer, you were kind of my guy. And uh, we kind of didn't really cross paths. I've been here for about 15, 16 years, but you were kind of on your way out of the CT when I started doing the men's CT. And I know we've talked once or twice since then, but yep. um, I'm excited to talk today.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, those days that you're talking about on the road to Spike. That was fun times and all those films that we made um, back in those days and just traveling. You know, I didn't think it was making films, but just... Traveling the world back in those days was a lot of fun and uh, definitely a blast and stoked that you enjoyed it and keep the Goofy Footers together, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, we have to. Although it seems like they're doing really well these days on tour. Yes, yes. Yeah,
1: Gabby and Italo have uh, solidified that for us.
0: Now, this, this episode's likely going to drop after Mexico concludes, but before Tahiti, um, Mexico's running as we're talking. Um, have, have you been yep. watching the event at all?
1: I watched a lot of it yesterday. Um, today I had a, a busy day and I wanted to get some saltwater time myself with the kids. So we spent most of the morning at the beach and then the, ro- the road trip to the dump, which is always a nice place to go. If you want to see bald eagles, that's where they're at. <laughs> <laughs>
0: as, as America intended. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, now you competed here back in 2006. You finished ninth and you beat Poncho Sullivan and Marcelo Nunes in round one. You beat Troy Brooks in round three. And you went down to Taj in, in, in round four. Have you yes. been back to Barra de la Cruz since that event?
1: I was there this summer. Um, oh, wow. kind of my first like real trip back after the COVID stuff settled down. O'Neill sent me down there, spent, and it's three weeks down there. just couldn't leave, um, scheduled for 10 days and ended up being three weeks. So it's a, it's a great place. We had a lot of fun and, uh, the, the year you're talking about that was special. Um, I did right. three trips that season that year. Um, and that event, the lead up to that event, the free surf, no one there, so much fun. Um,
0: and then obviously the event went off, and uh, yeah, Taj got me, so whatever. <laughs> so it was fun, yes, it was fun to watch. And you, you hadn't been back since the summer, you had been about 15 years. I hadn't been there since, yes. Wow, and that's my what first was, time what, back. What were, what were kind of the key takeaways between 2006 and last summer?
1: Um, I spent most of my time a little further south in Barra, mm-hmm. um, on this trip. And I, we did go to Barra a couple of days towards the end. It wasn't that big. So I couldn't tell what the bar is doing. The boys said the week before it was fully doing the barrel thing proper. Um, right. we just served it kind of fun and playful. Like it was, you know, yesterday or whatever, a little smaller than that even. But, um, but my, my key takeaways, I mean, I don't know the, the community up near Barra still seemed pretty similar to me. Um, mm. you know, Selena's was a lot of fun down there. That's where we spent most of our time and my, Kids, we did film the O'Neill thing, and then that was so much fun. I called some friends, I'm like, "Hey, can you bring the kids down?" And then they ended up coming down for the last week. And, um, but yeah, I mean, but going there and seeing Bara when you know when you come in and you see the point when you're driving down the hill, it's you know brought back a lot of memories. Um, obviously when Andy won, uh, mm. that was a lot of fun. That's great night. I had a great party that night. It was fun.
0: <laughs> and as someone who's who's competed there before, um, and and obviously surfed it as much as you have. Do you think a wave like that, are you at a disadvantage on your backhand or do you think there's still a balance of kind of, of, of weapons, whether you're on your forehand or backhand?
1: When I think of bar, I only think of the tube. So no, I think there's no disadvantage at all. I prefer to be backside in the tube there. Um, mm. It's way more, I can control my speed. You know, I don't have to come out of the tube. I think regular footers, when you watch films of people surfing there, they're in and out of the tube, in and out of the tube, as I can just sit in that thing. If I'm on a perfect wave, the whole wave till it closes out. But, um, you know, and you see that a lot too at Chopu. I would, a lot of times, Chopu, I'd almost prefer to be backside for the speed of the wave um, to slow yourself down. But certain waves, you want to be frontside when you really got a running gun. But all the other waves, when you need to control your speed, it's so much easier to sit on your butt backside and just drag and kind of go ebb and flow with the wave. Um, So, but yesterday was different. You know, it was smaller maneuvers. But in my head, I don't think about that. I don't, you know. But either way, like, everyone's so good nowadays. I don't think, besides the tubes, everyone can get big moves on any kind of situation.
0: Right, right. Now, uh, we are going to get back to kind of the Genesis story of Corey Lopez and, and your incredible t- career. And I definitely want to talk about Tahiti. But I, I did want to pause for a second, because for someone who was arguably a tier one profile surfer in, in the 90s and the oddies, you've been kind of relatively private and, and out of the spotlight in the past decade, which I remember interviews from, from, from years ago when you were growing up, you kind of preferred it that way. And so I was wondering if that's that's been intentional.
1: Um, intentional or not, I don't know. I just really immersed myself with my children, my family mm-hmm. um, over the last number of years. And I've been getting around it more over this last year with my kids, just that kind of started competing they actually just started competing and surfing as well. And, um, COVID hit. So paused it for the last 18 months or however long as things been going on forever, right. um, <laughs> 10, so like, years. <laughs> yes, I know it's like the never ending plague. Um, but so I'm starting to get my face in there. Like I went to lowers this summer for the U S championships with both my kids. They both competed. So I got to see a bunch of old friends, which is fun, you know? Um,
0: and your daughter did really well, right?
1: Yeah. She finished second in the 12 and under girls. And, um, you know, so it was really exciting to watch, you know, my parents came down a bunch of family that, that lives out there as well came down and, um, she was so close to getting a win too. It's was, it was pretty dang exciting. It all came down to the final like minute and all the girls got a wave and she, you know, she almost got her score. It was, it was pretty sick.
0: I, I ran into uh, your brother Shay, uh, man, again, 10,000 years, but a couple of years ago at the last stab high and, and, I had worked with him when he was doing the vans and the surfer mag stuff, and he was commentating kind of when I started. So so we had a bit of a relationship and we were talking about everything. And he had commented about how, you know, Corey and I have kind of flipped because he said that when you guys were younger, he was the really competitive one and you were kind of the free surfing guy. And he goes, now he goes, Shay was like, you know, I'm kind of a shaper, like free surfing guy, and Corey and his kids are really into competing. Is that is that fair?
1: Uh I think so. I mean I'm I i do not like to compete anymore. I get asked to compete quite a bit still and I prefer not to. I'm doing Why a charity is that? event. Uh, I'm the I don't know. I I do it just I don't know. I think I did it at such a high level for so long, I just kinda just don't want to really do it anymore. <laughs> That's um, fair. I've done, I've a friend of mine runs a tube contest in Portugal. It's a invitational like the one day of the year um, in Portugal, which is really fun. I'll do that just because it's a fun trip. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I love Portugal and the wave. It's, he's picking, trying to pitch the best day of the year. So it's always on fire and heavy, too. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I did that right before COVID hit, I think that was January. Knocked myself out of my heat. So I hit the bottom pretty hard. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I don't, don't want to push myself that hard anymore, man.
0: I yeah. Do I, I, compete. I, I, I was talking to, um, I think you mentioned you guys live pretty close. Um, your neighbor Lisa Anderson uh, on the pod yep. a, a couple episodes ago, and we were talking about the Masters, and she she cited uh, Mark Richards um, when she answered. She said, "You know, Mr. said like I'm never going to compete in the Masters. Like I." I won four world titles. Like, why do I have to compete again? Like, there's nothing for me to gain. There's everyone else can come and like hammer me and try to win, beat me, and I don't get anything. And Lisa was like, Yeah, me too. And I, it sounds like it's kind of similar, you know, when you've competed at that such a high level for so long, it, at a, after a while, you, you get a little bit burned out.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, there's that level too. Like, do you want to compete? Do you want to put yourself in a situation? Um, Losing is not mm. fun. You get older. Are you as good as you were? Um, I, you know, but to me too, it's like, I give my kids a lot of my time. So I prefer my weekends with them, um, doing fun things, whether it's just going to the beach or skating, whatever, you know, fishing kind of that kind of thing too. Um, free surf trips are, I won't turn those down though. If someone calls me and says, Koi, we're going to Mexico, Puerto Rico, you name it. I'm in.
0: And where do you guys live now? Um, well, I'm in Daytona beach. So, okay.
1: um, Yep. So that's home. We're not too far from Lisa's. She's up in Ormond, you know, about Orman, yeah. 20 minutes away from us. So we're kind of South side of town.
0: And, and, but you, you came from the Gulf coast side of Florida. That's correct. Yeah. I grew up in the Lake Gulf.
1: The Gulf of Mexico is really flat. Um, not a lot of surf there. So and then I, as I turned professional, started competing, I lived in California as I was in San Clemente for a long time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, living with Mike Riola and Matt Biolas when I first moved out there and, uh, kind of those days. And then actually lived with Chris Ward for a while and his family um, back in the day as well. A lot of couch surfing, but spent 15 years in California in San Clemente. And then when me and my wife had our children, my first daughter was born in California. Uh, We wanted to raise them back here in Florida. So we settled here. I felt this is a really good spot for waves and a great community to raise kids in. So
0: you know, people are always saying like they're always amazed by the quality of surfers that come out of Florida, and and also the quality of surfers who are are amazing in in really really heavy critical waves. Considering Florida doesn't have a ton of them, but the Gulf Coast of Florida has even less of them. Could, could, for someone who's maybe not initiated to the Gulf Coast of Florida and the surfing community there, could you describe it to to the listeners?
1: Um, so it's you know, there's maybe sixty days of waves a year there. Something mm-hmm. like that. And maybe five of them are good. Uh, it's a lot of windswell. You're surfing waist high, rib, chest high, wind chop. You're, if it's 30 miles an hour and onshore, you're stoked. Like I remember I'd be at school as a kid and it'd be blowing super hard. I'm like, my dad's about to get me out of school. Cause if there's waves, he's coming to class and getting <laughs> me out, like taking me surfing. Um, so being a surfer, you got to be dedicated. So you're looking for anything you can surf. And then on the weekends, you know, and my dad off work, we were driving to the East coast, um, mainly surfing Sebastian back in those days. So, uh, you know, every, my dad's a road warrior. I can't imagine how many miles he has. He drove me and shade <laughs> to the East coast,
0: you know, thousands of times. And your, your dad, Pete, what was his motivation for, for taking you surfing? Did he just enjoy it himself or did he, did he have intentions of, I want them to get good at competing. I, I want them to be professional surfers.
1: I think back then that wasn't even a thought in his mind not like it is today with social media and all these different things. Um, He didn't have any idea about professional surfing. He just wanted the kids to us to go to the beach and have fun and be stoked. And obviously we did the local ESAs, um, started those at a pretty young age. So he was putting us into contests and he would even do them too, but never thinking professional, you know what I mean? But it just kind of, our careers kept going and me and Shay kept doing well. Um, winning winning east coast championships winning u.s championships and things like that and uh, it never crossed my mind of going professional for i think until i saw shay get a car um <laughs> all of a sudden he like moved to california it was sponsored by billabong and and then uh, he got a car i'm like how'd you get that it was all like contest money i'm like what and i'm like if he can do it that's that's what i need to do so and yeah but yeah but back then not like today where kids are kind of bred and trained to be professional surfers. that kind of know that there's coaches. We had no coaches. We had no idea what other surfers around the world were really doing. You could kind of get a glimpse into it in the magazines here and there, but there was no like kind of handbook to it necessarily. Like,
0: always it always strikes me as interesting because the surfing world is so enamored by by surfing siblings you know whether it's the irons brothers or the hobgoods or the lopez brothers or the wright family and and they always kind of cover it as isn't it amazing that so much talent is within one family but but having at least sat pretty close to a lot of these families and observed up up close it makes all the sense in the world because siblings often just push each other, right? Because you kind of have this built in competition. And if mm-hmm. you have the talent there, then then it doesn't surprise that that all the brothers and sisters get really, really good. Did you what was your relationship like with Shay growing up in and around surfing?
1: We were very competitive for sure. So mm. a lot of that's true. Like one, we just wanted to always be at the beach surfing together, but we always were trying to outdo each other as well. Obviously I was younger, so I had a lot more work to do and he Shay pushed me very hard. Um, you know, trying to, he's three years older than me, um, to the day actually, but, uh, we're trying to, uh, I was always trying to keep up with him and all his friends, you know, whatever he was into, I was trying to do at, a, you know, three years younger of an age. So that pushed me a lot. So I was thankful to have an older brother for sure. Um, you know, but when you look at brothers and all kinds of sports, no matter what it is, there's a lot of, you know, you got the Mannings and football. There's so many families of really talented, you know, you name it baseball kinds of sports where there's just families that breed that sport, they breed that sport, you know, um, but cause we live and breathe it, you know, surfing to me is mm-hmm. my family. It's my everything, the beach is my life. So, um, going there and have my kids around it is, is just kind of where we like to hang out. So
0: it, uh, Damien and CJ have sort of, um, famously talked about how, how their, the com- competition between them growing up was not necessarily healthy. It, it was effective. Um, in that they got really good really quickly but they were you know came to blows a lot and just didn't like each other for a number of years did did that happen with you and Shay, or did you could do you look back and consider it kind of a healthier in terms of the spectrum
1: i would say 90 percent of it was healthy there mm-hmm. was some few moments where i was maybe a little more aggressive than shea um, and maybe <laughs> took it too far so that's politely saying it <laughs> but yeah right. i would sometimes i'd push things a little too far and and Shay would bother me or whatever, you know, would
0: what would be an example?
1: Oh, I, you could just shit back then when in the van so many hours, he could just be breathing wrong. I could get pissed off, <laughs> 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 but you know, it's that's just cause you're together so much and you're in the van and driving back and across the state, but then competitively, you know, it never was crazy than the competitive arena. Cause he was always in a division up, older up than me. It was right. more just in personal life than me and him would go head to head on just dumb crap you know, kids growing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned coming out to California, what age did you, did you cross the country and and settle in San Clemente for a bit? And what were the circumstances that brought you out to the West coast?
1: So I, you know, I want to say I would just turn 17. Um, and I was switching, or maybe I was just turning probably 16 right in there. I was just switching sponsors from Billabong to O'Neill Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I got a paycheck and had my own money, um, signed a contract with O'Neill and they, they gave me a salary and I had some freedom from my parents and freedom to travel. They gave me a budget to travel and start doing events. So back then we had the PSAA, the Bud Pro Tour, and um, a lot of those events were all in California. So Shay was already doing them. I wanted to go out there. Uh, I grew up, Mike Guerrilla, one of the founders of Lost, um, him and Violas, you know, it's, Mike grew up on the Gulf Coast as well. a friend of mine he said corey i got a couch like get out here start doing these events and um you know i went out there and slept on mike and matt's couch for six months eight months i don't know a year it was a long time and then uh (laughs) and uh started doing those events so yeah that was kind of what got me out there i wanted to compete i saw my brother doing i wanted to do it um you know that's kind of where it started started doing those psas and the bud tour and the following year um my 17, 18 season was when I started doing the QS and traveling. And I think I did 22 events that year in the QS and qualified. So uh,
0: what was, and what was, if you 17, I mean, we talked about the differences between professional surfing now and then probably wasn't as robust a homeschooling opportunity if you wanted to leave and go do the tour. But when you said you left to the West Coast, what was the deal with high school? Did you, did you finish? Did you not finish?
1: Yeah. My mom was a teacher and I spoke with her about it. I go, mom, I'm, I'm getting a paycheck now. And you know, I've got this opportunity to go start surfing these events. What should I do? You know, what am I, what am I allowed to do? You know, I had to ask permission sure. um, and she told me to charge it. And I started a homeschool program back then. No Wi-Fi. There's right, yeah. <laughs> no phones. Um, it was literally your books around the world, mail them in. I remember being in Indonesia and mailing in like stacks of papers, like, this is so dumb. It was so <laughs> frustrating, so not fun of a program. I still watch the kids now in homeschool. It's so much, they're so, they don't even know they got a kid. Um, but yeah, so I did that for a while, ultimately I ended up getting a GED because it was just too much. Um, so
0: yeah. You know, I, you mentioned like no Wi-Fi and no phones and I've had this conversation so much over the last few years because I, I do often reflect on what, you know, you and and Chris and, and Andy and Bruce and those guys are doing in those films, like traveling, you know, as teenagers or just outside of teenagers to places like West Oz or places like Indonesia and like largely unsupervised and like with no phone. Like I, it just seems like if, if you put any kid from today into that situation at the same age with no phone and no Wi-Fi, it would it would paralyze them they'd have like no idea how to navigate the world do you ever kind of reflect back on that and wonder like well how did we survive
1: yeah even before that i remember being 11 getting on the airplane with no no they didn't carry you around the airport back in the day right yeah they didn't like you didn't pace an extra fee and a person that worked for the airlines take you from point a to point b you just had to go find where you're going so my first trip i think i was 11 or 10 by myself on a plane you know it's going across the country and into hawaii but it you know you had nothing but and then you got like going to europe like you said no phones no nothing me and wardo 17 years old going to europe land in lisbon how do we get to the beach so you bring a map They somehow gave us a car i have no idea why they'd give us 17 year olds a car <laughs> but they did back then and uh so you get you know it's it was fun times i i wouldn't change it for the world to have those experiences and that that sense of adventure like true adventure where you're just you know you get there you land in a foreign language country you don't speak any of it and you just kind of go exploring and start trying to find the beach and find the waves and ultimately the contest site
0: (laughs) so even even in the the 15 years or 16 years i've been doing this it's changed so much but i it it does feel like you had the opportunity to be so much more present, even even when I started. Like same deal, where they're like, "Okay, here are the event dates. Like book your own travel, and you go somewhere. You don't speak the language. You don't have a smartphone. You know, you, you the Wi-Fi is impossible to find. So you just you're actually forced to be present with whoever you're talking to, wherever you are, like occupying your time compared to now, where. You're like, oh, I could just be patched into my phone, like listening to a podcast, or you know, on maps yeah. or whatever. I don't actually have to engage with anyone around me now, and and I do feel like that's a bummer because I it it, it felt so much better when I first started.
1: Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun and enjoying all that time and and just adventuring. But you know, and like me and Wardo too, like so we would travel and do the stuff, and then I owed a lot of uh, a lot of what I did when I was young to guys like Shane Besh and Dino and Dino, who did help bring us on the road and. And do a lot of those events, you know, um, Derek Ho, those those kind of guys. We traveled with Kaipo Akias back in those early days on tour. Um, really laid the foundation for me um, and what I did, and showed me the ropes. Like, you know, so I was lucky. To, like, I always be trying to jump on flights of Beshin
0: because I knew I could find a beach if I was with him, for right. sure. And when you were that when you were that age, were you thinking, well, yeah, no, I want to get on the CT because that seems like a better lifestyle, or were you just kind of looking at it and saying? I can't believe someone's going to pay me to go to Australia or Europe or Indonesia. And yeah, there's a contest that kind of justifies why I'm going. But I, I'm curious as to what your mindset was as like a teenager. Were you hyper-focused on qualifying or are you just like, this is amazing and competition I think is first, sort of a means to an end?
1: Yeah. At first it was just, you know, I did get to go on a couple amazing trips. I remember when I got O'Neill sent me, right when I signed with him, sent me on a trip with um, Cody Graham and Todd Chesser to Indo. Mm. And, um, this was, I was 16 years old. I'm 44 is a long time ago. Um, so that was an amazing trip and we got in this little crappy boat and we ended up at deserts and we didn't know about all the different variables, but we had a blast and we we're on, you know, just me, Cody and, and Todd and it was a lot of fun. But, and then I, same year, I got to go to Canary Islands. So those are free surf trips. That was to me at first, that was like my the pinnacle. I got to go mm. Indo and Canary islands all in the same year being barreled out of my mind. Um, but then I started seeing Shea. Shea qualified. 1996, I had the GLAN contest. Um I saw what was going on. I was like, I got that was the year I was really saw that. And I'm like, I gotta qualify. I want they're having GLAN again in ninety seven. I want I gotta be there. And uh I qualified and got to go there. So it was uh it was cool.
0: It is funny, like even with the Mexico event happening right now, like it's it's not the 2006 conditions. Um waves are so good. There's probably some of the best waves they've had all year to compete in. And I often think back on all those events where you only got the, the version that the that the fans got of the event was 3 to 6 months later in a magazine like 15 pages of photos and you're just looking as a kid, you're looking at these photos saying this this place just must pump. It must have just been pumping the whole event like it's amazing 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 and you don't because there's no webcast, you're not exposed to things like lulls or, like, lay days or yeah. anything, and you're just like, man. And so I do think there's a little bit of dissonance in terms of fandom when people are like, oh, yeah, Mexico's okay. It's not as good as it could be, but it's like, dude, it's pumping. Like, that's what this is. <laughs> that's just what surfing is.
1: No, yeah, like, yesterday was good waves. Like And like you said, maybe the best waves all season so far. You know, that stuff that Australia Lake was pretty poor this year, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but so, like, Mexico was was as fun yesterday and i haven't seen it today but hopefully it's it's going off
0: when did you 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 mentioned knowing um mike riola from growing up on the gulf coast when did you start riding uh mayhem surfboards
1: so yeah i was riding xanadu's when i was sleeping on his couch at first i think the first you know, maybe for six months I was living at his house. I was on Xanity's, which is kind of weird. And then, uh, <laughs> he never said, he never said
0: anything where he's like,
1: <laughs> well, you know, he was getting wards boards going and you know, they're trying to grow a business. He, I don't know if they even had the cash necessary to, to give me Get boards. You boards you know, yeah. They're trying to build a business and you know, if you have two young kids that break boards every other session, it's a lot to support, <laughs> you know, Warda back then he was a big young kid. So he was, he'd bust through equipment. Um, and uh so yeah it was like about six months later it was must have been 94 95 something like that that i started riding his board. oh i didn't turn this thing off did yeah, i that's all good <laughs> that's my dad
0: <laughs> sorry pete cool so we're gonna take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors and when we come back we're gonna dig into life on the championship tour wslstore.com is powered by shopify You're traveling around the world. You're riding for O'Neill, which must have felt nice because you got away from Billabong, where your brother was riding. You qualify for the Championship Tour in 1997. Was there any difference between what you expected the tour to be like in your first few years versus what the reality was?
1: I wouldn't say that I actually had any expectations. Um, You know, Bashin filled me in pretty well. I, sp- mm. I spent a lot of time with Shane back in those days. He was kind of my travel partner, especially that first year on the on the big tour. Um,
0: and did you guys it, form a relationship just living in San Clemente together? Was there anything else?
1: Yeah, we started just surfing together in San Clemente quite a bit. And um, just similar interest, you know, if he's going to the beach. But a lot of similar friends all through San Clemente.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, I was very – Shane took me under his wing and it was – Amazing to have him as kind of my mentor in those days onto the tour to kind of bridge that gap from the QS onto the tour, kind of show me the ropes. Um, you know, obviously Shane was real close with Derek, so I got to travel with Derek quite a bit that year. We said guys like Kaipo, um, Poto, Vatia, David, um, mm-hmm. you know, a number of other older guys that were on tour that I, you know, got to learn a lot from. So, but yeah, the tour, I didn't know what to expect. I know g fired that year. It was unreal. <laughs> I was in heaven. It was so good. I was, it was too good for my heat. I blew it. I was like, as good <laughs> as i seen waves, I just wanted to go the biggest set I could and ultimately just couldn't make one because every wave was going it was way too radical. So,
0: you know, a, a lot of the men and women on tour today and, and really over the last decade ha, always include you in terms of their list of, of surfers who influenced their approach. Um, and in a lot of ways, that was the story of you on on the championship tour as well. Is that it felt like your approach was a little bit of ahead of its time in the sense of of being rewarded for you know hyper progressive surfing above the lip surfing, you know, blending that with with full power and and tube riding. Did you ever bristle at that when you were on tour? Did you Did you feel like a man like I the sport the the competitive sport has not caught up to where surfing is going?
1: Yeah, I think I've. Definitely was in that. I was in that with Shane a lot because, you know, you remember Shane pushing the airs in that. And I came in and I wanted to push that with him. That was kind of like an agenda. He was pushing like progression. Um, And I came in and that was what we would talk about. Like, you know, how can we get gnarly? How can we do something more progressive Um, and start doing in our heats? You know, start doing airs, start doing other stuff. And the judges at the time, some of the stuff, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, Mm -hmm. they just wanted to see three to the beach. We're still counting three waves at the time, you know? Um, so it, it was a beginning stage of the progression where it started to go. Um, Shane was a big part of that. Um, and then I, I think that I came in and definitely helped push it from what I could do, um, by bringing errors to my heats and, and bringing more progression and whips and slides and things like that.
0: Yeah. Shane um, famously had like a lot of really impactful conversations with the judging panel during his career. D- did you do the same? Did you speak with the judges a lot or did you kind of not engage no, with them? No.
1: I, yeah, I wasn't. I think I went up on the tower maybe once in my life and regretted that I even <laughs> did. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a good moment. So, uh, you know, it's it's yeah i leave that shane was a guy he was in there trying to preach them about how to how to score what's going on you know and how mm. to how to push things forward to get what ultimate got us here you know it took 20 years but
0: and when it. when you were on the championship tour it, it I, I might answer my question for myself here but it feels like you were there to push your own surfing were there any performance results world title goals once you were on tour were you like i'm here to win a world title i'm here to win this event i'm here to you know make the top 10 or whatever or were you just were you just on tour trying to surf your best
1: I always show up trying to surf my best that's for sure um there was a couple years where i felt like i might have had a chance to to mm-hmm. win one um obviously the year cj won 2001 i had a chance i actually had to was one heat away um at the, uh, that year ended at sunset beach and yeah. um Shane Feshin had a wild card and beat me. If I won that heat, I would have won the title. So it's uh, <laughs> CJ. There's a number yeah, of have guys. You, have you
0: have you spoken to him about that since?
1: <laughs> to Shane, I don't yeah. know if I ever told him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was uh it was ironic. It was like the lead. I'm like, do I tell Shane that I just need to win this heat? <laughs> and the waves sucked. It was like way too big. Washed through just you know 15 foot out of control sunset and the battle of fours came down to Shane had two high fours. I had two low fours and it was just bad. So that was unfortunate, but that was my chance in 2001. Um, and there's a couple of years where I felt like I was hanging in there like in the top five for part of the year. And sometimes I'd get a good start in the beginning of the year and kind of get close, you know, maybe a victory here or there at somewhere that was barreling would have, would have broke me through, but
0: were, were there any venues on tour uh, during your tenure that you felt like were a bit of your Achilles heel, where you're like, oh, I, I never do well here, or, or this kind of a wave, or these conditions, I just, I know that I'm, I'm up against it.
1: I mean, I really like surfing Jeffries Bay, but I just never I had the luck there. Sure. But um, <laughs> I didn't mind the wave, I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it wasn't my forte. <laughs> I think I got better at you know, backhand surfing as my, I got older. And started spending more time in
0: right points right so you know one of the one of the things when we talked about you being a tier one high profile athlete in in the 90s and and the audience um was you were really neck and neck with andy you know in free surfs and and in heats and in competition and and that that is how it was presented to the world but you know my understanding is that you guys had a really really close friendship and i'm wondering how and when you guys met
1: so I must have been about 13 when I met Andy. Um, mm. It was at the USA Championships at Diamond Head. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, he, he, he tells the story, he, and he has a much better memory than me. So he would, he, I know this story because of him telling me the story. And he be like, <laughs> I remember I heard about you, and like you came and like, you had this long dyed black hair. And I was like, who is this punk? Who's he think he is? Like, <laughs> come to the island and of course like i lost first heat so um, <laughs> so i think he was stoked <laughs> at the time but we ultimately ended up meeting then briefly during that event and then several years later in san Clemente, um started surfing together more and more and then built our relationship uh you know did some start doing events together and then traveling together of course and then spent most of my career traveling with him um, he came on the tour maybe two years after me, or a year and a half. I forget what his first year was. Mm. Uh, maybe a year, maybe a year, just a year after me. Or, I, I, think I,
0: his- I think he was. I think he was ninety eight, but then he fell off, and then he got back yep. on. Yeah, yeah, that's why we were
1: kind of together and not together for a little bit, and then yeah, must have been two thousand ten when he finally came on forever. Or nine, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, we formed a great relationship, really close. Um, you know. Uh, think about him all the
0: time, and and we had a lot of
1: lot of great memories uh, with that man. So,
0: of course, yeah. I mean, I, I as I said, like the impression that everyone got was not just that you guys had a close friendship, but that you were pushing each other in the progressive oh, yeah. realm all the time. um yes. And one of those one of those really uh, memorable points was I think it was the two thousand three Quicksilver Pro final in Fiji. Um, I think you guys were against each other, and and Andy ended up winning. and And I was wondering if you uh, maybe your memory is not <laughs> as good as you think it was, but I'm wondering if you remember that that final at all, and if if you guys exchanged words in the water before, during, or after.
1: I do. Um, I was just unpacking my stuff yesterday, moving to my new house, and I found the runners-up trophy. You know, <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I still have it. it still burns, dude. Oh, runners-up no. trophy's hurt. Hurt more than yours, yeah. Um, so, but my son asked what that trophy was and I, you know, filled him in on the story yesterday actually, but um, th- that was a good final. And the whole event, you know, we we're just going through rounds on opposite sides of the draw and scoring big scores. But that whole day, every heat, the second wave or the first wave was the good wave the whole way. And then I started up. Andy, let me get positioned for the first wave. And I was like, Oh, sick. <laughs> and every wave in that heat in the final, second wave was the one and that's just how andy flipped it on me so i would end up with a couple sevens he ended up with a couple nines so that's that's how it went but yeah we're very competitive we i you know if we're at chopu it didn't matter where we were we are always trying to out duel each other um maneuver, out get clips for filming um it, me and him sparred together really well. We got along well on the beach, but then we sparred together really well in the water to kind of push each other surfing, especially back in those days. Um, ultimately, he obviously did what he did and became one of the greatest surfers of all time. Uh, you know, So he uh, I think he was just a little more built for it. He had that 20 extra pounds of muscle in, over me and, <laughs> and, and that competitive driven spirit like no one I've ever seen that just had so much fire to go out and destroy people. Um, those were the levels that he took it past me and was able to, uh, accomplish what he accomplished. which was amazing.
0: Probably 20 to 40 pounds, depending on the year, right? Because he was, he was <laughs> yeah, up yeah, and down on the weight. Some
1: years. I think, I think <laughs> his fighting weight was, yeah, was 20 pounds more than me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and you, you ended up stepping away from the CT after a decade, um, in 2007. I, Walk me through that. Cause I kind of remember you had a few injuries that you had to work through, but I don't, I don't remember exactly.
1: Yeah. That year was, I mean, I had some ankle issues going on and, and I don't think that was anything that, that cost me I actually did good. A couple of those events. I had my hurt ankles. <laughs> um, but then it, it ultimately came down. I needed to make one heat again. Um, came, comes down the pipeline event. I was feeling really confident. Uh, I have Luke Stedman, praying for big surf, um, out of pipe and, uh, unfortunately it was waist high off the walls where they held the contest i'm talking waist high off the wall and uh yeah i lost so i fell off tour i think it was a blessing in disguise um i don't think i'd be where i am today had i maybe made that heat so i just look at it it as what it was meant to be um you know ended up raising three beautiful kids and yeah back home in the sunshine state and enjoy it but falling off 2007 wasn't that bad because o'neill supported me to go travel and And have an amazing time just chasing waves so
0: yeah and it it feels like you had laid the groundwork to be able to flex in and out of competitive surfing and free surfing from the very beginning you know because you're putting out a ton of video content um you were great on editorial and i and i remember like almost immediately after after you stepped away from the tour not that I don't think you discovered the wave, but you certainly put it on the map, the the Skeleton Bay wave, one of the first ones that really broke the Internet, right? That was pretty quick after, after you stepped away from the CT.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the exact year, but must have I think it might have been right around 2008, right? That probably, probably was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, you know, went there on a trip with um, Pete Mendia, Evan Slater, uh, Mitch Colburn, and Hank Gaskell a um, couple of photographers and one of the guys actually found it on Google maps. I forget his name, Mark or something like that.
0: Oh, he's a good, oh, sorry. It was the Google, it was the like Google, Google search maps thing. Wave, yes. right? Yeah. So
1: that's, that's how the wave was discovered was that, um, it was a Google maps, surfer max surfing magazine did a, uh, a contest and whoever found the, the great wave on Google maps would surfing magazine go, st- go do a trip there and you get to go for free. So we went there, um, it was amazing and uh we saw the point unfortunately the wave doesn't break that often and we haven't time to spend a month there to get it the break <laughs> but uh, oh, no. like, oh, wow. the next one will do it the next one will do it <laughs> and uh and then finally it broke so and then when you know when you see a break it's like nothing you've ever seen before especially for being the first people to ever surf it like just the fact that no one was there um was mind-blowing
0: so you were riding a different board, if I remember, like uh, I think it was the monkfish or something. The monkfish, right? yes, yeah, yeah. Yep, I rode the monkfish and just had some fun.
1: Yeah, but that, was, yeah. yeah. I,
0: I, and and we can get into this next a little bit. But like, I love watching elite CT surfers surf non like Ferrari equipment, you know? And mm-hmm. and whether it's a fish or a single fin or whatever it is, it's just it's so rad to see like the top talent in the world ride different equipment and draw different lines and and that's obviously something that you're synonymous with because of the five five by 19 and quarter movement um between you and Chris with 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 Matt Biolas and it doesn't seem like you were ever that like um what's the word like like fundamentalist about your equipment where you're like I have to ride my Ferrari thruster all the time it feels like you were open to experimenting quite a lot
1: yeah I think I enjoyed that uh, I enjoyed the variety of of surfing and different maneuvers you could do and of course you know that was all based on matt too you know just coming with these boards and ideas of stuff that he wanted to do um and he had me and wardo there in his backyard you know and he was like hey you guys ride these and we're like got on and we're like wow it's amazing like we can surf so different and just draw all these new lines and it just felt really uh creative it felt like you could you're just playing with something something all new it's like a fresh toy you know um and then sometimes you get on those boards and you don't want to get off those boards. And then, you know, it, it it's, I've seen the ebb and flow in my life, in my career, you know, you get hyper-focused on competition. You get focused in on those Ferrari boards as you're calling them, you know, your high performance thruster. And then when you finally get back on the other board and you're like, now I don't want to get off this. I just rode, was it last year? I rode a fish for a year straight. <laughs> I got three sessions in a year that are on a different board. So I rode and my goal like is we we're kind of morphed into this. This was a, off the stock board. That I just grabbed that real water sports up in the outer banks. And I got on this fish It's five, five, 19 quarter. It's actually five, six. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, I got on it and started riding. I loved it so much. I just wrote every session and all of a sudden like, I'm like, God, it's been like five months. I've been on this board. <laughs> and, um, and I I became a game. How long can I write it before it dies? I was writing it this summer and, and you know, that was over a year. So it was like a long, long time.
0: Yeah. So you know in, in addition to the alternative equipment um you are one of the people that redefined how to surf tahiti uh and chopu um we mentioned this is going to be dropping probably after the end of the mexico event but ahead of of tahiti i wanted to talk to you about that when was the first time you went to tahiti and, and what are your memories of that wave
1: so it must have been like 94 or something like that mm. um because our, it must, whatever year it was, I was supposed to graduate regular high school because mm. a friend of mine graduated <laughs> and wanted to go on a trip before they started college. And I'm like, well, meet me in Tahiti. I'm going. I'll be there like next
0: week. And we... Uh, what were you going we, for? Was it like a photo trip or...
1: Yeah, I was. I had my other buddy. We were, we were just going to go. Well, we heard about it. We, we seen some pictures and we heard about the end of the road and Chobu and we, we just wanted to go there. Um, and then no idea where we we're going, of course, back then there wasn't much information. You've seen a couple photos in magazines and you kind of heard rumblings about this wave at the end of the road, it's a crazy barrel. And uh, that was why I wanted to go. And uh, so I went there and um, it was some friends. We stayed on the wrong side of the island, had no idea where the wave was. You know, we stayed right by the airport and all of a sudden we're like, crap, it's like the wave's an hour and a half away. So <laughs> anyway, that was my first time, uh, figured out where the wave was and never stopped going back for a long time.
0: Um, that was fun. I, 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 I appreciate the humility with which you like, I figured it out and never stopped going back. But like, I'm going to pause you there. Because I mean, you, you and, and maybe one or two other people throughout those years were the only ones that were comfortable taking off where you took off, like taking the lines that you took. And is that just something that you feel like you were naturally... Comfortable with from the very beginning, or did you take time to figure it out? Did you kind of have to work through some fears and doubts? Because, I mean, even as recently as like the last few years, you know, when you when you're talking about championship tour surfers going to Chopu who haven't been a lot, like it's a very intimidating thing, and they're they're not comfortable sitting where you sat you know 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the scariest waves in the world for sure. Mm. Um, And, you know, luckily, like I had that first trip to kind of get warmed up to it. And I started going every year. I would spend a lot of time there. So I would go and it was, wasn't strange for me to be there for a month at a time. Right. Um, And just, you know, when you're down there, you're mostly surfing that wave. So I put in a lot of time. Um, I wasn't, back then I was young, um, didn't have that fear or didn't think about things like that. Like what the wave could do to you, <laughs> um, I knew it could hurt my flesh, but never thought that it could, uh, you know, it could kill you or do something like crazy like that. Um, even though we we know that that can happen, and it actually did happen back in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's it just that wave was—I was all about that wave, and it, like I love the west bowl. I love the beginning of swells when it's coming up more west, and it's coming out of the channel. it Kind of looks like a closeout, and you're like, "Oh, is it a closeout?" And, you get this feeling of like, I might screw up if I go in this way, but if I don't go and it spits and be pissed, you know? Um, so yeah, it's fun. And we had a lot of learning to do back then when I first started going there, people were riding longer boards. Um, I remember I used to pack seven O's in my board bag mm. and I quickly learned that seven O kind of sucks out there. But you got guys <laughs> like when I first started having that gotcha pro, you had guys like Liam McNamara out there on bigger boards, you know, right. and paddling in and he would glide into some of them for sure. But those ones that feather up and, you know, that just suck up and go into that inside bowl, like you're not making one that kind of board. And the speed to ride aboard that length in the barrel. Um, The wave sucks so hard off the bottom when you have all that rail, the board wants to pull back and slow down. So that's what I learned quickly as I was riding the bigger waves that my longer boards um, were not conducive to coming out of the barrel because they would just slow down. They had all that rail dragging and the wave sucks so much water out that you go backwards with the long rail. Mm-hmm. So I quickly like broke those boards because I was falling and then <laughs> nothing left, but shorter boards, I'm like these shorter boards are so much better. So it, uh, that you know, we learned a lot there and the kids nowadays ride like tiny boards out there, um,
0: you know, when you were going there, I, I just think it's cool that, I mean, I mean, that life and I guess professional surfing's changed so much that back in the day you had the freedom to say, yeah, I'm spending a month in Tahiti because I want to get, I love this wave and I want to get good at surfing it. And you sometimes hear that, like, I think I remember, I remember Mick used to do that when he, he struggled with, with those kind of waves on his backhand. He would spend, you know, four to six weeks at the spot just to kind of get better at it. Um, with the women returning to Chopu for the first time in I think 15 or 16 years, for a lot of the, the women who've never been there, haven't surfed it that much you know your father you probably give your kids advice on surfing what what kind of advice would you give to to the young women that are going there for the first time or even some of the young men who probably haven't been there that much
1: um you know just watch your peers and and people that have been there and and see how they approach it and try to study that you know it's uh don't you can't have the fear in you that you're gonna get hurt obviously because then you probably will but um sit inside, paddle hard, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I, I think I'm excited to watch the girls. I think some girls are gonna really surprise us. They're gonna push themselves. It's gonna be fun, um, you know, it, it's, it's exciting. It scares the crap out of my daughter. She's like, dad, they're going to Chops and Pipeline. <laughs> she's like, <laughs>
0: you know, she's 12, but, um, but <laughs> it's, she's it's got, great. she's it's, got her eyes on being a pro surfer. She does. Yeah, she
1: she has a very competitive drive. Um, she wants to yeah, she wants to do it. She loves watching. We were watching yesterday the women surf and always rooting for Caroline. Um, you know, we got her brother lives right down the street from us, not too far. So
0: we're uh, big marks fans and yeah. You guys are gonna have to start spending a month in Tahiti again.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I got some time. I
1: still got some time. That's why i was like, you know, my son's like, Dad, when can I go to? skeleton bay he wants to go so bad he's been asking me for years already i'm like dude i'll be like you're eight and then he's like, 10 <laughs> now but like he's been asking me since he was eight like dad when i get to go to skeleton bay i'm like dude like <laughs> wait bro like you'll get there but Who, I don't
0: know. When, when you were pushing yourself in those years when you were there for a month at a time or at the event who were, as I said, it, it does feel like there's a huge gap between some of the people that really take to Chopu and, and the rest of what we're calling the world's best surfers because they are, but it is just amazing that there's a level to it. Who were some of the people that were in your camp as, as really sort of pushing the boundaries at Chopu?
1: Um, I mean, in those early days, you obviously it was Andy, uh, Kobe mm-hmm. Aberton, Bruce. Um, I remember Conan Hayes getting some amazing waves out there the one year at him and I think it was him and Kobe battled in that final. Um, mm-hmm. of the qualifiers to get into the contest. Uh, you know, you had Malik, who was amazing out there. Um, I remember watching that one wave that he rode to live, which at the time was the biggest wave ever ridden there, still mm-hmm. arguably one of the tallest uh, waves. Um, you know, those guys all pushed me hard. Um, you, know, you had Poto doing his thing out there back in the day, uh, Manoa. All those guys, it was, Manoa was, like, so smooth out there like huh. silky smooth. He was like, I don't know. Must be like the Bentley of the wave. I don't know what you know. He was <laughs> That guy, he was the most gnarly situation. He looked so calm and smooth. You know, he was a really awesome person to watch on such an intense wave and how his calmness and approach to it was, you know, as then you have Andy that was just so
0: aggressive to the wave. Right. You know what I mean? I mean and and you know. so
1: beautiful too, but like,
0: yeah. I mean, even so in, in, you know, you mentioned you, you stepped away from the tour at the end of 07. Andy had a sabbatical. He came back in 2010. Um Tahiti is one of those events I've been fortunate enough to go to for, you know, 10 years. And um the 2010 year was the first year actually I'd been there a bunch when Andy was there, but I was the first year I remember being out in the water like with him on the day before I think we finished, which had kind of small waves. And In the afternoon there were just little waves and there weren't any um pros out so we went out and surfed for a bit and then right on dark it started to kind of pulse and you know a big boat came in and you know all the the big dogs came out like kelly and mick and whoever was still in the event at the time and i remember kind of paddling to the channel and just watching them all and being really impressed and then i remember just that difference like watching andy compared to someone like kelly or compared to someone like mick or who cj or whoever else was out there and just being like I can't believe he's a level above all these people. Like, but he just had such a, a like an ease and like a like a, a relationship with the wave that it was really stunning to watch in person.
1: Yeah, you know, you, all, you name all these great surfers, right? And super talented. But and when it's four to six feet, too, it's everyone kind of play with it and dabble with the wave and and you know ride the wave the way you want it, and manipulate what you're doing. But when you really saw. In the sessions I was speaking of earlier where obviously mm-hmm. I'm only thinking ten foot plus, barely rideable. Um, those days where you're pushing the boundaries of paddling, surfing out there. And that that's where I my pinnacle of who is the best out there was those guys. Who could ride mm-hmm. the wave when it was as dangerous as it gets and still handle it, you know. Obviously CJ Hobgood, you know, the wave he rode, Damien always attacked it too, guys I left out. Um, a lot of guys I probably left out, but I remember just watching Andy on some of the sessions, you know, um, just mad dogging it and 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 controlling it, and making ninety percent of his waves. So wow. his approach, and and he'll he'll go back to you, and he'll he would have told you like the thing he didn't want me to outdo him. <laughs> he'll <laughs> tell you, he's, I've heard him say this. He's like, I wasn't letting you outdo me out there today, <laughs> you know. And he'd be pissed if he if I got a bigger wave, you know, if I got a bigger nice. wave or a deeper barrel, you know. It's all about the bigger wave. It wasn't about yeah you know who got the bigger wave got barely made it you know um there's definitely those some machoism in it like you know men being men and you know you gotta i don't know
0: it's there's that battle yeah
1: it was fun i I loved it i that's what we kind of lived for back then
0: yeah and i mean it you know they of course there's a machismo to it but that's also it's also kind of how males relate to each other sometimes, you know? So it's, it sounds like for, especially between you and him, there was a lot of like love that, that drove that. And, um, you know, it was amazing to be there and watch him win that event. And so sad, um, when he passed away a couple months later, I I was in Puerto Rico when it happened. Um, where were you when you heard about Andy's passing?
1: I was in an airport and, uh, just coming home from skeleton Bay and, Mm -hmm. uh, just landed and, and uh Alec Parker told me he was on the plane with me and he he somehow caught news. I was actually as he was telling me I was listening to voicemails from Andy. That I just landed and we were on a plane for you know a zillion hours. And I land and I have voicemails like, I'm in Miami like come meet up because he thinks. Florida he thinks I live by Miami you know like it's all one place (laughs) Um, (laughs) drive there in
0: a day yeah
1: yeah yeah it's four hours from my house but I'm right there down the street um so yeah it was it was like surreal I literally had him voicemails on my phone listening to him as my buddy was like looking at me like trying to tell me something I'm like it, it was just put the
0: hoodie on you know yeah
1: um yeah unfortunate like worst day of
0: our lives yeah yeah and you know processing that over the last several years did did you because you guys were so close did you ever have to kind of seek professional help or or speak to somebody about it to kind of work through what had happened no
1: I didn't um I I guess maybe I'm pretty strong that way but I'm a very emotional person so yeah I definitely cried about it you know just it was tough it was not fun um, took a while for that pain to kind of go away. And, um, you know, I was thinking about another night, uh, just musical, come on song. Some of them remind me of them. And I'm like, like, it just, it just breaks my heart thinking I'm not being here, you know? So.
0: Music's insane um, like that. Like this is the way it triggers, like it could trigger like a day, you know, in your life yeah. when a song comes on, you're like, Oh my God, like I didn't know I'd associated that song with that experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mostly it, it just breaks my heart that, you know, I just wish that he could do what I'm doing now, which was raising a family. You know, he was yeah. just about to have his son. Was, that's the song came on the other day and I was just listening to words. And I was like, he never got to do this. Like, it just really yeah. pisses me off. You know? It's, yeah. It, it, life is life is life, man.
0: Yeah. But I'd imagine, um, I'm, I'm a father too. I've got a boy and girl twins. They're seven. Um, and it, I, for speaking personally, like it's the purpose it gives me is like, it, it gets me through a lot so i'd imagine that that's been a, a wonderful thing for you to pour yourself into
1: yeah um it's it's yeah you the kids keep you occupied um they keep you busy and uh you know we actually owe andy for one of ours <laughs> so anyway it's uh it, it's it's good so we miss them like, tremendously and
0: um and the kids are fun so Yeah. Well, we got a couple more topics and we definitely have a, a bunch of listener questions that came through, but we narrowed it down to three, but we're going to take one more quick break to get a word in from our sponsors and we'll be back soon. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code lineup 15 That's manduka.com. Code the lineup fifteen one five. So in twenty twenty one and moving forward, we've redesigned how we're determining world champions with the WSL finals so the top five men and the top five women from the regular championship tour season will compete at a one-day event uh, in a linear format um, and the winner on the day will have to win the world title against the best of the season and in the water i'm not sure if you've been across that yet but i'm curious to learn your thoughts on that
1: i'm really excited about it i think that it's going to be a great event to watch as a fan of surfing I think if I was an athlete, it might upset me a little bit, (laughs) but I don't sit in those shoes anymore. You know, if you're like one of those athletes that kick butt like Gabby this year, you know, like, yeah, you're like, crap, I still got to go and earn it on the last event of the year when I should have this giant lead. Um, but I think for fans, it's for us, we're going to be super pumped to watch this day and all the levels of just the intensity of what's going to be on each surfer. Um, you know, kind of reminds me of what NASCAR did like 10 years ago, where they broke it down. They used the same thing. NASCAR guys would win, maybe 10 races left, and it was over. Same thing that we've been experiencing for you know the whole history of surfing. Um, but now to have it all come down to the last day, it will be really a lot of fun.
0: I've told this story a lot on the podcast, but I, you know, was sort of the chief skeptic inside the building when because this conversation was happening for years. And and I said, ah, oh, look, I have got like legitimacy issues. Like if you do it this way, is it the, you know, is that as, as valuable as the way we used to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And during the event in Fiji, um, I was gonna say it was like 2017 or around there, we had a meeting with all the, the world champs and and all the people who had kind of been in contention, who'd finished like second and third over the last few years and got them in a room and and talked about this. And I was shocked because to a person, they were like, yeah, no, that sounds awesome. I want to win the world. I don't want to win the world title, like sitting on the beach. I don't want to win the world title, like sitting on the couch. Like I want to win it in the water and I want to beat the next person. Like that's how I want to win it. And I said, oh, wow. Well, if you guys feel that way, then. Interesting. It, it's gotten interesting as we've gotten closer to it to kind of listen to people like be excited about it or listen to people be a little bit skeptical about it. Now, the way the format works is you know, fourth and fifth surf in the first heat, the winner surfs against number three, the winner surfs against number two, and then the winner of that surfs in a best two out of three against number one. If you were still on tour and you were in the WSL Final Five, which spot would you want to be and why?
1: oh i mean obviously you want to be in the top spot and just waiting for someone else to to come up to you i mean that's the ultimate spot to be in and have your two out of three um for sure but then there could be that momentum thing Uh, you know who knows all the all the top five guys are going to be able to win a world title they're going to be that good they're going to be the best surfers in the world either any of them can beat the other person on any given day i'm pretty sure that that's what we'll end up with at the end of the year some great surfers um if we don't, that guy just got lucky to get there. <laughs> but it should be all of our very top guys, and it should be great. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm pumped on it. The halfway yeah. cut thing, I'm not a fan of it all, though. I'll tell you that much. Oh, yeah, go uh, on. I think the halfway cut thing is a joke. I don't think that your career should be decided in the first half. Um, and you might say, oh, it's not your career. But, yeah, you're going back to the QS. And when you are missing these, we all have our specialties in surfing, right? You know, right. but so if you're missing out on some waves that are your specialty, are your these are your spots, you know. Now you didn't even get a chance to hit it, but that might have been where you would have hit gold. You know, um, right. so I, I, they're I get what they're trying to do, bring more drama and action to it. That's what the final five thing did. I think that's going to do a great job. It'd probably be the most watched event in history of surfing potentially. Um, I think the halfway cut will make that last event important for some people, and some people, more people might tune in. I don't think it'll. It's all about ratings, right? And I don't know, you know. Yeah, I y- know.
0: Y- yes and no. I, I I totally agree with I totally agree with what you're saying too. Like some people are just gonna be like, Man, I I I'm not gonna hit my straps until I get to to G Land or Lowers or Rio or J Bay or Tahiti, yes. right? Um, yeah. I think it's it's not just about ratings. I think part of it too is also getting the field down to a window where you can run in a single swell cycle. because um, because that's going a challenge for us too. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, right? And, and it is one of those things too. I, I think when it happened back in 2011, I don't, I don't necessarily think those are apples and apples. But there was no challenger series to fall back onto, where it was just you're just kind of off the map. You are back on at the QS, and now there's a challenger series. It's got pretty good venues, and so it's now a three tier system. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it pans yeah, out. It, um You sure. know, as an
1: athlete though, your your contract will be based on what
0: oh totally you're surfing. In.
1: So it's T- when you fall back, you might have just lost. 100 grand or whatever the number is for each athlete. Yeah. Right. Well, um,
0: totally. Yeah. So,
1: so to me, those are like big things. You know, you're basing your life around this, but all of a sudden you're like, crap. And I have a, that first half isn't really my favorite half. But anyway, I'll go yeah. too deep in it. I didn't like the first time in 2011 when they did it. I, was, <laughs> I,
0: did, I didn't, I didn't like it either. And I was in the building. <laughs> was like, this is this yeah. It's like, it's not really hard. That was, I was it, funny because, yeah.
1: i was going through as i moved in i was going through old books and i had a book where we all all the guys on tour like not not all of them but a lot of guys on tour signed this petition trying not to have that happen the halfway cut back then and i don't know what the feeling is in the building now with the surfers obviously they signed off on this so it's their choice my opinion does not
0: matter Mm -hmm. it's my opinion it's like whatever but oh i well a couple things i think your opinion does matter for sure the second thing is yes, it, all these changes obviously have to be done in concert with the the surfers group. Um, yeah, but it's it, it's interesting, especially when it gets to things like this with the cut, because probably to a person, even if they vote one way in their heart of hearts, they're like, well, I'm about surviving. I don't want to make it harder to survive. So yeah. this becomes well, real challenging well, for me.
1: It gets hard. Like, well, who does who would vote to fire your friend too? Like, you're like, well, I'm a top five guy. Always, I'm cool. But then. Forget, you know, Tommy over there. Like, <laughs> <you> <laughs> go back to working at the docks, bro. Like, you know, um so that's where I look at it too. Like, how it, tight do we want to be? And I get the cycle, the swell cycle thing. That's what we were sold on when we went from 44 to 32. Right. But then they added around. So mm. it didn't change. there are still at four days. um You know, and I understand, like, yeah, you're trying to get the best waves. You know, we're, you know, probably trying to get to sing back to what was the dream tour at one point. Um, you know, now that COVID's ending and we can hopefully get back to, you know, like next year's got some great venues, um, you know, and this year too, but
0: you know, it's,
1: uh, it's fun. It, I enjoy it. I love when the waves are good. I love when it's too, and I get to watch.
0: And um, so. If you had a, if you had to pick men's and women's world champions who are going to win the Rip Curl WSL finals this year at Lowers, who would you pick as of today?
1: Mm. i mean just because i'm not biased i'm gonna go with caroline but <laughs> um but i mean chris it would be a chris wouldn't be a really hard call not to call her you know um know. and then men's i gotta even look at the ratings lately to see who's our guys are gonna make the top five so who's our, who's our? We've got so
0: off the top of my head, it's uh, Gabriel's number one, Italo's number two, Felipe's number three. Oh shoot! Now it's not off the top of my head. Morgan's in there. I think Morgan's at number four, which is cool for a rookie. And then mm-hmm. number five is Griffin, if I remember correctly.
1: Well, I'm personally looking at like and before you said those numbers, I was already thinking Felipe. I was thinking lowers Felipe. With Griffin being a local, he's so amazing there too. I would, I think I would go
0: with those two. All right, uh, I like the picks. Yeah. Well, so I mentioned we put um, some questions out to the Instagram community, and we got uh, a bunch back, but we did whittle it down to three. So uh, the first question is from I am Matson, which is, "What are some of your favorite memories from your surf sessions with Andy Irons? Maybe just give us one that that stands out to you." Um, I think when I took him to Skeleton Bay for his first time,
1: and uh, I think it was the only time, maybe I don't remember if he went again, but and he that's when he's going through some troubles, and he got out there and he just thanked me. He's like, "Thank you so much for bringing me here. This is what surfing's all about." I'm so stoked, and he had the best day. We had the best day. We just got barreled all day. The beer at the end of the day never tasted so good on the dock, you know. It was just awesome. It was just a great time to see him so happy. And I knew he'd been struggling. And to see him so stoked and that joy and just full of life, that was a really, really special uh, trip
0: and day. So, I love it. Second question is from Yannick DeBuff, which is, if you could surf a heat today with three guys from your days on the CT, who would they be and where would you surf?
1: Um. I would probably like, like from all the events we had, we'd probably just pick Gland and I would just surf with my brother and Beshan and Andy, <laughs> <a good> <laughs> my good, good boys. We just we just have so much fun. It would be unreal. Can we throw Wardo and Bruce into six? Yeah, 20? sure. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Ground days. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Last question from the Instagram community. I'm gonna screw this name up. Aniskov Mand, I'm sorry. Um, what are what are some of the ways that surfing has made you a better person?
1: Some of the ways surfing has made me a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, back in the day when I was doing it professionally, and, and little kids would be stoked on you. Um, just being kind to them and giving them your time, whether it's signing autograph or talking to them in a lineup. Um, you know, I do a grom event here. Haven't done it since COVID, but I used to do a grom event every year um, and just giving back to the kids like that. I think that's a lot. Um, anything you can do like charity base with your surfing, I think is, is big. Um, whether it's a cystic fibrosis stuff that, that we, that I've done worked with those guys a number of times, um, you know, all that stuff. But the kids, just, I, I love helping the children surf and, and keeping them stoked and being in the water and, and just playing.
0: That's awesome. All right, we're now down to our final segment, which is the lightning round presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. These are 10 questions. Answer as fast as you can. First question. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? A Thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? um burrito last book you read i don't know dance with us in fourth grade (laughs) (laughs) best surf film ever um performers (laughs) one wave you never have to go back to uh oh gee (laughs) bacchio if you only got to surf one wave for the rest of your life um, Mundaka, as best as it gets. Yeah, both know. in Spain, that's pretty good. That's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, because well, you're sold in the dream of your, Mundaka. Your head's there, and then your <laughs> hit,
1: right. your heat ends up being at Bacchio, and you're like, why <laughs> am I not at Mundaka? Uh,
0: yeah, sure. I mean, I missed that event for just that whiplash. That was always fun. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> the best person to share the lineup with
1: um maybe pat o'connell okay worst person (laughs) to share the lineup with oh maybe tom carroll back in the day
0: (laughs) (laughs) i hear it's still pretty bad so (laughs) last one uh finish this sentence i will next achieve a state of happiness by
1: Wait, I will next. I was laughing about there Tom Carroll right. to getting mad
0: at me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that Instagram thing where it's like Tom Car- tom Carroll's not real. He can't hurt you. And then it's like Tom <laughs> Carroll pops up. <laughs> he's
1: going to kill me. Uh,
0: uh, so, wait, I'm uh, the- oh, sorry. So, last one. Uh, finish the sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by
1: um just taking my kids surfing. Let's go to the beach. Water's crystal clear right now. It's like an aquarium. So, I'm going Be there in the morning that's
0: awesome Corey. thank you so much for coming on the lineup man it's a personal treat for me and and i hope we get to talk more and i hope we get to see you more um, very very soon
1: yep cool thanks for having me appreciate it
0: so that's it that's the lineups conversation with Corey lopez i hope you enjoyed it this episode is produced by ryan fawcett with art direction by jason penning thanks to both of them and thanks to our sponsors we appreciate their support the lineup acknowledges those recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kichtavagnar, and the Timucua Native American people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday.